Welcome back, history fans. I know, you're fans. You can't get enough of this stuff. Anyhow, we are going to be talking about World War II again. But this time we're going to be focusing on the Pacific Theater. Now, I will do a couple references back to everything that happened in Europe. And we'll be talking about the United States some. But we're going to be kind of talking more on the whole about the war against Japan and also some issues we had back home in the United States. So let's uh, finish up World War II, at least with the European stuff. And that's going to be uh, starting off with the Yalta Conference. So this was a meeting of the Big Three, and hopefully uh, the term the Big Three is nothing new to anyone. Uh, but the Big Three consisted of Winston Churchill from Great Britain, Franklin Delano Roosevelt from the United States, and Joseph Stalin from the Soviet Union, because we were friends with them during World War II. So anyhow, uh, they met February of 1945, and they were going to decide the final attack on Germany and the future of Europe as we know it. Um, so, anyhow, they kind of made the agreement that after Germany was, you know, liberated from Nazi rule and under control and whatnot, that it was going to be split up into four parts, and the capital, Berlin, was also going to be split up into four parts. And other promises were made, including free elections, but these weren't necessarily upheld by Joseph Stalin, so... Um, anyhow, we'll get back into that a little bit later. So, now... Before the Allies got fleet to Berlin, uh, there was one last kind of major counterattack by the Germans, one little last-ditch effort, and this was the Battle of the Bulge. And Hitler had used these railway cars and you know, loaded some of his troops, or his last bit of troops, up on them and tried to punch a hole through our defenses. And it didn't quite make a full hole through our defenses, but it did make, you guessed it, a bulge, because... They kind of pushed us away, and we were able to contain them, but it kind of, yeah, you get it, Battle of the Bulge. So, anyhow, that was the last-ditch effort, and after that, we finally did take Berlin. But it wasn't even us who got there first. The Soviet Union actually got to Berlin first. And the last holdouts in Germany, I mean, Hitler had no one left, so it was either really young or really old combatants. And in class, I'll have some... Uh, uh, kind of sad pictures of all this to show you, but um, that'll be for another time. So, um, anyhow, May 8th, 1945 is Victory in Europe Day. So, VE Day. So, make sure you know that one. And then, um, but sadly, May 8th um, came a little too late for FDR, who died on April 12th, 1945. So, he never got to see us win in Europe and definitely didn't get to see us win in the Pacific Theater because the war in the Pacific was still going on. So let's um, do a little bit of a backtrack. We're going to be talking now mostly about the Pacific Theater. So now we mentioned Midway Island and the Midway attack uh, after the Doolittle Raids, but that's all we've really talked about the Japanese. So now let's talk about the Philippines, and we'll get into some other areas too. So if you remember a long time ago, Spanish-American War time period, we took control of the Philippines, we being the United States. Well, the Japanese didn't exactly like us having control of this, if they're going to start controlling the Pacific area. So in April of 1942, they took over and kicked us out. So uh, we had to leave, but there were some holdouts, uh, some soldiers and nurses from the United States were uh, kind of holding up on a little island called Corridor. My pronunciation might not be the best. 
Um, so they held out as long as they could, but uh, they had uh, low supplies, and eventually they had to surrender, which was a total of 76,000. That was a combination of American and American forces and some Filipino forces that were kind of like under direction of the Americans. So um, anyhow, uh, they were captured by the Japanese, and the Japanese did not think highly of anyone who was like a, who would surrender and become a prisoner of war. So these now are being held as prisoners, and you can kind of get the idea of what I'm alluding to. There's going to be some poor treatment here. So they were split up into groups of between 500 and 1,000 troops, and they were forced to march 60 miles to a railroad junction. Once they got to the railroad junction, they um, took the railroad for a little while, and then they walked an additional eight miles after that. And the type of marching and so forth that we're talking about here is terrible. Uh, they have just tropical heat, um, you know, very little uh, water and food, depending on the treatment by the guards that were in control. Some of them got treated a little bit nicer than others, but overall, terrible treatment, being beaten and tortured, uh, very little food, water, rest, all those things. And uh, during this time, remember, we started off with around uh, 76,000, uh, 10,000 of them died during this time, and that's about 13% or so. And this journey took somewhere between 6 and 12 days, depending on how fast the group that you were in were moving. And so, um, and this became known as the Bataan Death Marches. And once at the work camps uh, that they were being transferred to, another 15,000 died. So in total, about 25,000 died, which is about 33% or so. And like I said, this is the Bataan Death Marches. And any pictures or anything like that I would show you would look very similar to what we saw with like Holocaust survivors. It was very terrible, bad treatment. So now the Japanese taking control of the Philippines like this, eventually we will liberate them, but that's not going to come for a while. Um, they also took control of Indochina, Indonesia, Malaya, uh, uh, Malaya sorry, and many other islands in here. We'll talk about Iwo Jima, Okinawa, Guadalcanal, all of these that they are taking over. So basically, they're taking over the Pacific Theater and all the little islands around Japan. They're kind of forming a barrier of islands of safety. And we finally kind of stopped their advances, um, and they were actually moving towards Australia. But the Battle of the Coral Sea, and this was in May of 1942, kind of finally put a little stop to all the Japanese advances. After that, it was kind of up to us to kind of start pushing them back to Japan. So uh, the U.S. Army forces in the Pacific Theater were under the control of Douglas MacArthur. And that's got a real big name for the Pacific Theater. And then the naval forces were under Chester, Chester, sorry, Chester Nimitz, and that's another real big name. Uh, so those are the two kind of big names of all of the Pacific Theater. So... All right, we've already talked a little bit about the Philippines. We'll talk about the liberation of that maybe a little bit later. Um, so let's talk about the Battle of Guadalcanal. This was part of the Solomon Islands, and the Japanese were trying to build an airfield here that were, they were trying to threaten nearby Allied bases. So we landed with 11,000 Marines um, in August of 1942, and they had around 2,200 Japanese soldiers. And the Japanese soldiers, it was much different than what we were used to with something like the uh, D-Day invasion because the Japanese ran away. They retreated into the jungle. Well, this seemed like they were running away, but this Guadalcanal had swamps and rivers and vines and all kinds of just nasty foliage, and the snipers were easy to hide there. The Japanese were retreating in so they had better, like, home court advantage. They could kind of hide out and get us with their snipers and uh, kind of ambush attacks and those kind of things. So 
it was a pretty nasty way of fighting. And so this type of fighting is what we experienced when we went from island to island. And what we would do is we would attack some islands, but not all islands. And by the way, if I forgot to mention 100%, we did eventually take Guadalcanal. Um, and these are going to be a series of island battles. And so we did this strategy called island hopping, where, would we, where we would selectively attack certain enemy islands, but we'd also leave other ones alone. And the idea was that if we would attack some and we left others, we could cut off supplies and new troops and food, water, all that good fun stuff that was going to some islands if we would just take out a couple. So we would basically break the chain of command or the chain of supplies for this one. So um, cut off or bypass all these different supplies. Um, also, just a little side note from the Pacific Theater, it wasn't until the summer of 1944 that we started to see suicide plane bombers, also known as kamikazes. All right, so anyhow, we have a series of these different islands, and you know, there's a few that I'm going to touch on a little bit more than others. Uh, Guadalcanal being our first one here, Coral Sea Battle and whatnot, Philippines we talked about, but now Iwo Jima. So it seemed the closer and closer we got to Japan, the more intense the fighting became. The Japanese would stop at nothing to protect their homeland, and the closer we got to it, the more angry they got. It was kind of like a beehive. The closer you got, the more they would defend. So Iwo Jima, 700 miles away from Japan, and this is a very small um, kind of former volcanic island, uh, just a ton of like honeycomb of caves and cliffs, and the Japanese had dug into this one. Uh, they had 1,500 uh, rooms cut into this giant, you know, kind of extinct volcano, if you will, 16 miles worth of tunnels and about 5,000 pillboxes or like little enclosures where they had um, fortifications that they could have machine gun nests and so forth. Now, this island would normally be uninhabited, so there weren't any civilians there, but this tiny small island was able to be held for 74 days, and it was just some intense fighting through all of that time that we were trying to take this. So uh, we dropped around 7,000 tons of bombs, and we hit it with more than 20,000 shells. And after three days of combat trying to advance on different areas, we had only taken 700 yards worth of territory. So this was a very slow-going battle. And uh, this you actually might remember a kind of iconic picture from this with the Marines that are raising the flag at the top of Iwo Jima, and it's been memorialized um, at uh, the statue of Mount uh, Suribachi flag. I apologize for my terrible pronunciation there, but you can see it in Washington, D.C. So in total, it took us 110,000 American troops um, to take control, and there was only 25,000 Japanese. So we outnumbered them, but they were just, they were dug in so well, their defenses. And remember how we said that the Japanese really didn't like prisoners of war? Well, they didn't want to be taken as prisoners of war. Only 216 prisoners were taken, and they just were notorious for never surrendering. Um, in total, the Americans, we've had 110,000, we had 25,000 casualties, and gave out 27 medals of honor. So, um, and that image I told you about, the raising of the flag, was a very popular image, um, not only now when we talk about World War II, but also um, it helped promote the buying of victory bonds, which we have talked about previously in this class. So, the last kind of 
giant um, island hopping uh, that we are going to talk about here before we get into the planned invasion of the homeland of Japan is the Battle of Okinawa, which is 350 miles away from Japan. So we're getting pretty darn close here. And the enemy at this part, no surprise, had pledged to fight to the death. And this was the second largest invasion fleet uh, of the Allied forces, uh, just shy of what we used at Normandy. We had 1,300 warships and 180,000 troops that we were going to be um, using for this invasion. And uh, it took, and the Japanese enemies used 2,000 of those kamikazes that we talked about earlier. Um, now, not just kamikazes, um, we know that one from these suicide plane attacks, but we also saw these ground-based attacks of suicide attacks, and these were called bonsai charges. And those are attacks in which the soldiers, the Japanese enemy soldiers, tried to kill as many enemy as possible until they, they died themselves. So if they ran out of bullets, they would run in with their bayonets and just try and do as much damage as possible. So Okinawa was terrible. Uh, we're getting hit with kamikazes, bonsai charges, and remember, we're getting so close to Japan, they will do anything. So this battle went on for three months. And in the end, there was only 7,200 defenders uh, or Japanese that surrendered, and we had 50,000 U.S. casualties. And a casualty, if you remember, is either missing, killed, or injured. And this was considered the most costly engagement of the entire Pacific War. And, um, and this was very similar to Iwo Jima in the respect that this served as a kind of precursor or preparation for our invasion of Japan. And it also contributed to our decision to kind of not invade Japan and instead drop the atomic bomb. And we'll kind of be getting into that one a little bit more here because we figured if we were going to actually invade with troops Japan, it was going to take one million troops to do it, and we were going to have half a million or 500,000 casualties. So... Rewind a little bit here. August 1939, FDR got a letter from this guy named Albert Einstein, you know, that whole E equals MC squared kind of guy here. And in this letter, he outlined the idea for this thing called an atomic bomb. So um, FDR said, you know what, this, is, this looks like a great military asset. He wanted to get this thing going. So he instituted this thing called the Manhattan Project, and this was the secret building of the atomic bomb. And the first field test of the atomic bomb was on July 16th of 1945 in New Mexico. Now, I know what you're thinking. Manhattan Project sounds like New York, but yet I just said New Mexico. Now, that was just part of the great amounts of deception that went into the entire Manhattan Project and all the secrecy and everything. So, now we finally get this bomb. And, the well... FDR, as we talked about earlier, passed away, so he never got to uh, see us win in Europe or in the Pacific Theater, so it really wasn't even up to him to drop the bomb. So the final decision came down to Harry Truman, um, who, when he was sworn into office and like, okay, Vice President, you are now the president, you know, basically at that point they kind of whispered in his ear and say, by the way, we know you were kind of like the second highest person in the country, but we kind of never told you that we had this thing called the atomic bomb that could probably end the war. So it was left up to Harry Truman, uh, Harry S. Truman, and we'll talk about that S later on. It doesn't stand for anything. Spoiler alert, we'll get there. Anyhow, 
there's four major options when it comes to this atomic bomb and like what we're going to do or not do kind of thing. So the first option was, well, let's, you know, we'll drop this bomb because if we don't, there's going to be half a million in allied casualties. That's just allied casualties. That's not even talking about the Japanese casualties, which would probably be in the millions. All right. Other option, we could try and starve out the Japanese and continue buying them like we have been, no nuclear bombs. Or maybe we could take one of those nuclear bombs, we could detonate it on an uninhabited island nearby Japan, create a giant mushroom cloud, everyone in Japan would see it and be like, oh my gosh, I hate mushrooms, I'm scared of that kind of thing, and then they would surrender. Um, or maybe we talk to Japan and say, hey look, you probably want to surrender, so how about I change my demands and say, you guys can surrender, and we'll let you surrender, surrender with a little bit of dignity. You can keep your emperor, you can keep your military, you can keep your whatever. Um, so basically we would change it from an unconditional surrender where, look, you surrender, that's it, to a conditional surrender where, hey, you guys get to keep a few things. So those are the kind of options. And so we're kind of weighing what we're going to do. And um, like I said, eventually it was up to uh, Harry S. Truman and when he took over, he learned about it, and he said, you know what, this is a military weapon, we are at war, we are going to use it. And he thought that this would, in fact, make them, you know, surrender. And they eventually did. So August 6, 1945, an American plane known as the Enola Gay dropped the first atomic bomb on Hiroshima. Approximately 80,000 people died, um, and just as many also were wounded and suffering at the time. Um, 80,000 dead instantly, and then uh, more to follow because of radiation and all the other fires and so forth. All right. Well, the devastation, crazy and so forth and huge, but they still didn't uh, surrender. So three days later, we dropped another one. And this plane that was dropping it was called Boxcar, and it dropped, it, uh, dropped the bomb on Nagasaki. And the two bombs that I'm referring to were Fat Man and Little Boy. And so... Um, at that point, Japan finally decided that, yep, we probably should surrender. So August 15th, 1945, Victory in Japan Day, pretty big day. The formal surrender was being signed on September 2nd, 1945, not as important as August 15th, 1945, was signed aboard the USS Missouri. And so we're going to kind of hold there for a little bit, at least I'm going to end this podcast uh, right there. And I'm going to pick up with a second podcast talking more about some of the things that were going on back home during the same time that we're fighting the Japanese. So we're going to be talking about the internment camps and some other different forms of uh, racism that was going on in the United States during this time and just social effects in general. So um, anyhow, stay tuned for that podcast. I'm going to stop this one and we'll be back in just a moment. <laughs> 